Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 and Social Broadcasts, this is Transmitter. I'm Lucia Scazzocchio, and for this season of Transmitter, I'll be dedicating the next few episodes to conversation. Every morning since lockdown started, I set my alarm early to go for a walk. And every morning, I don't. That was audio storyteller Kathy Fitzgerald, and she's been turning the everyday into moments of wonder through her beautifully crafted audio documentaries for the past decade. And this is where our conversation starts. I do a little bit of everything um, audio-wise, um, mostly radio documentaries for the BBC um, about whatever weird and wonderful thing I can talk them into. Um, so things like how to dig a grave um, or why we like looking at blue sky, um, you know, weird and wonderful stuff. Um, and I've also um, been involved in audio tours, oral history, um, installations. I've made the odd um, sound installation and teaching. Um, I have a school for audio storytelling called Strange and Charmed, uh, which is currently on pandemic hiatus, rather sadly. You're not going for the Zoom teaching? I'm dithering a bit at the moment because I just really love teaching in person. It's all about in person and... I don't particularly like Zoom calls, so I need to have a think about just whether I'd still love it, because I don't really want to do it if I'm not going to love it. But also, teaching requires that sort of, you know, you throw yourself out a bigger version of yourself and more, you know, m- more receptive, more emotional, bigger version. And somehow with a screen, you have to do that even more. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I think I'm going to have a ponder about it, really. And you got into radio making and audio quite late. Yeah, um, so I I didn't actually start till I was about 35, 36. And um, I'd done all kinds of other things. I'd uh, been a pretty lousy fundraiser for charities. Uh, I worked in pensions for a tiny bit. I had been, uh, I was an academic, I did a PhD. I was a journalist. And fundamentally never quite fitted. And then the kind of the weight of self-loathing, <laughs> kind of at not finding a way to be creative, kind of, you know, just snowballed. And yeah, and I just got very lucky. I was working in a company that made audio tours and sort of just crept very slowly into this realisation that maybe I could do it. And then I, um, I had a mostly by chance, meeting with a really lovely chap at the World Service called Tony Phillips, who basically put a hand out and said, why don't you try? I think you might be able to do this. And that made 
all the difference. That was sort of the moment when finally I kind of got to be, or finally I got to work out who me might be. Yeah, so I feel very lucky to have done that, really. But there's also, I mean, luck is one thing, but I think it's often um, we we place a bit too much emphasis on luck. There's definitely a, a whole load of things that kind of go alongside that. So it's also knowing how to take that opportunity and being ready for it as well. Yeah, and I definitely was. I think that was the nice thing about being so much older that I just I remember actually walking along to the meeting with him and thinking I'm going to be absolutely myself you know no facade no front I'm just going to be me and if that's good enough great and if it's not fair enough and that sort of shrugging off of the facade and the expectation and you know every hint of the five-year plan or the sensible CV I don't know that was just hugely liberating and liberating creatively as well you know I think that's the thing that actually let me sort of you know Patty Smith has this great line about how you have to kick down the block you know you kick down the thing that's stopping you doing it and I think that was the moment I kicked it down um yeah so so what prevented you from kind of exploring other creative avenues before obviously there's something creative in writing and and the sort of yeah I think your PhD was um on Dickens right so there's that that's kind of creative but what what kind of was preventing you from exploring other I think I had that very unhelpful uh, English lit student desire to be a writer and uh, which has been the bane of many uh, many lives Uh, and the problem is you kind of you want to be a writer desperately from when you're young and there's so much pressure on it you just can't possibly do it but it doesn't free you up to try any other art form so it was actually I've sort of circled back on writing it was I needed to go to radio, I needed to realise I was creative, I needed to start writing in radio in order to think, oh, hang on a minute, maybe I could have a go at fiction. Um, But I just didn't have the confidence. I really didn't have the confidence. And I was always in the shadow jobs, the sort of admin, the organisational stuff. Yeah, it just took a really long time. I think that is quite common, especially for women. It takes a long while to realise you can have a voice and you can take up space and take up room and maybe even if you don't think you've got something to say you actually might have yeah and you dive straight in it was um it's kind of amazing your trajectory just starting you know with your first audio documentary being so kind of imaginative and I guess not having done it before and not going through the system you, it kind of and coming from a more literary background it kind of freed you up to just do what the hell you wanted and and kind of be much more imaginative and free in in you know what you were doing yeah and I I came in very much not wanting to make the same thing as everybody else because I'd had I had this sort of really transformative moment driving along the M4 on a rainy Saturday morning and I was listening to the radio and everything I heard I thought well that's fine but it's not really me and then I actually heard one of Alan Hall uh, Hall's documentaries Alan Hall from Falling Tree and he makes these beautiful lyrical kind of montages and it was just this really transcendent work that had genuine heart and genuine kind of reach in terms of I don't mean horrible marketing reach, I mean um, 
genuine desire to kind of touch the soul and the program finished and I thought I'd like to do it like that so that was this little moment where I suddenly realized actually there wasn't really anybody else who was doing what I wanted to do even though at that point I couldn't have been articulate about what it was I wanted to do so yeah I think coming late and not having the structure and not having the training so how do you reel them in first time I had to serve somebody I thought god no you go and do it I said terrified and then after that every, you get your confidence builds there was a kind of <laughs> there was a kind of pattern but it wasn't you know in stone it was it's whatever suits that person so you'd kind of tailor it depending on the woman and the feet yeah yeah, yeah of course yeah a lot of a lot of flirting going on lots lots was that fun oh yeah <laughs> Yeah, a lot, lot of fun. What, what was your best line? With me? Yeah, go on. <laughs> I, I, best I'm, I don't feel like I'm, I'm not going to buy this pair of shoes. I, um, Send me a pair of white stilettos. OK. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want you to wear white because that's a stereotype. I'll pick you a nice pair of red shoes. You know? Actually, that's perfect already. OK, do you want to try it on? <laughs> I would, yeah, red okay. shoes, that'll work. Take your shoe off and then I'll bend down. Yeah. Put it on and say, well, how does it feel? Right, right. this is all very innocent so far, I'm thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've got to be. You can't, you can't come full on to feel. Then you say, have a little have a walk. walk and so see I, walk, I walk up and down. That's it. Come back, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good, it's good. Yeah. You've got a good pair of legs there. You should, you should wear stilettos more often. <laughs> you know, and it goes on from there, lots yeah, of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. It all no, depends on the person, yeah. and if I liked them as well. Yeah, and what's coming back? You're very friendly, which is, you know, makes you vulnerable. Why is that? Because it does. <laughs> Women usually have a guard right. to protect them, and they, you have to come through that, make them laugh or something before you can start getting through that layer, and obviously looking in the eyes. You know, you don't look away. You look. You, if I look at you, you, you stay looking back. I'm hypnotised, Trevor. <laughs> Rubbish. <laughs> Rubbish. So this, this series is really about the art of conversation and how people approach conversation differently and what they do. And I really do think there is a difference between conversation and interview. And I just wondered what your thoughts are. I think you're right. I think having, in fact, let me take that back. You're definitely right. There is definitely a difference. I think maybe interview doesn't have to be quite so negative. It's maybe got a slight negative sense in the way it's uh, you've been thinking about it. I might be wrong. And I think sometimes there is that definitely. There are the interviews that are just, you know, pure smash and grab. You know, go and get what you want, get out. Um, and that's the sort of ugly side of it. But because I was thinking about the sort of stuff I do and I, I decided I, was, I wanted to have some kind of hybrid, maybe an intersation. Mm. <laughs> I couldn't think of a better word than that. But Because I definitely do think about what I want before I go. So yeah. I definitely have a sense of that. I definitely do have an agenda. I'm a storyteller and that's the angle I'm coming at it from, that I am looking for things to help me tell my stories and help me tell the stories of the people I'm talking to. At the same time, I'm delighted when it goes off script and it's natural and it's real and, um, you know, there are those moments of serendipity and um, I'm delighted when when the person I'm talking to thinks and is really present and real. Um, so I guess in that way, I sort of, there's I have more room for conversation than maybe 
you know, I'm not going in there with, I've got 10 minutes. I need to get, I need to get this package done in 10 minutes. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I do totally agree with you. And I think there isn't quite the right word for the in-between because there's a, of course, you know, you go, unless it's a completely serendipitous conversation and we'll, we'll talk about that as well there's an end point like you know you know that you're talking to somebody for a reason but that often happens in a in a kind of conversation as well right you it's like i'm gonna we're, we're gonna talk about this it might just take us a while to get there yeah exactly i think the difference for me is that it's about the route <laughs> so uh i think in an interview it's more of a straight line and you're kind of trying to get from a to b and just find the best way to do that and I think a conversation is more meandering and you can take the back routes and you can kind of go on a kind of country lane and stop for a pub lunch um (laughs) it's funny because I was thinking about all your metaphors about meandering and and how sort of geographical they are I was thinking kind of rivers and oxbow lakes and all kinds of strange things but definitely geographical and what I love is I definitely agree with the idea that um, I feel like an explorer I feel when I'm having when I'm interviewing or interview conversation and whatever I'm doing I do definitely feel like an explorer it's like I'm in this incredibly lush fertile jungle I have you know the barest of maps I have no idea what critter I'm going to meet under what leaf next and uh, I don't know, just the pleasure of that is extraordinary. You know, that moment of just like, you know, what, what uncharted land am I in? What are they, you know, what are they going to say next? Because they don't necessarily know what they're going to say next. And I love that moment where it's a surprise for both of you. And they're like, did I just say that? Is that, you know, is that what I really think? Oh, OK, that's interesting. I think I was thinking that um, the other way I might be a little bit different is... Um, I I love your sort of emphasis in your work is so much about that, I think, so much about dialogue and bringing people together, that sharing. And I, I love that. But I think I might be doing something slightly different in that what sort of energises me is uh, actually the idea of almost providing and being an audience. I have this real feeling that people don't actually get to feel heard that often Mm. and for me there is something sort of or I think the kind of maybe the touchstone the wellspring of what I'm doing is just that desire to kind of make a space you know sort of open up a really warm unjudgmental space where people can feel utterly heard both by me but then you know, I guess they've always got that sense that, you know, there's this whole potential BBC audience out there who will also witness. Um, so I think maybe that's the other reason I, I'm less conversational, perhaps, because in a way, there's part of me that's sitting back and just waiting. Yeah. No, I get that. And yes, I, I agree that um, a lot a lot of the stuff I do is about bringing people together and perhaps creating or engineering opportunities for people to have conversations that they might not necessarily have and with people that they perhaps would never talk to. Yeah, I love that. I really do. I just think it, it's so, it feels so unbelievably important at the moment. 
it, it does seem to be very <laughs> relevant right now. It's true. <laughs> it's true. And I think, you know, the more, I guess, the more siloed we become and the more kind of there is this need of just trying to understand where other people are coming from and realizing, you know, there are points of commonality and there, you know, we are all human beings. I mean, it sounds a bit trite, mm. but, you know, th there is some truth in that. I, I definitely get that deep listening and creating a space or yeah creating a space for some you know somebody to really reveal themselves both to themselves and to you and then to the kind of wider audience I think that's you know that's definitely a skill and a there's an art in that you know asking the kind of questions that allow people to go on that their own journey yeah I think because I think I get such a kick out of I get such a kick out of the way people change physically when they are given a bit of space, when they're given conversational space. I'm just, I'm thinking about what I'm saying, I'm realising it. Because people do physically, you know, they do sit up a bit straighter mm. and they kind of, I, I always say I love that moment where somebody in an interview conversation, suddenly, it's usually about five minutes or ten minutes in, they will look you dead in the eye. You'll have asked a question, they will look you dead in the eye. And you can almost see them realising, I'm absolutely engaged, I'm enthralled, I'm really there. And then they get bigger. And I just, I find the energy of that is really, I don't know, I want to say exciting, but that feels like the wrong word. I mean, there is a, there is a beauty to it. It is, a, it is quite a you know a beautiful thing to watch yeah and then I I don't know about you but when I have that kind of conversational moment with somebody you do feel really energized and so do they yeah there's a real buzz to it isn't it and I I think my favorite one of my or one of my very favorite moments in radio was getting a text um I did a program about Romford Market and um, after it went out on the BBC, I got a text from one of the lovely women I'd interviewed, Val, um, just saying, telling me she'd been to the bank and she'd told everybody in the bank uh, that she'd been on radio. And, you know, Romford was really making it now. Everybody knew about Romford. And you could just hear this huge excitement and happiness and, you know, the shock of it. And so that's really, I'm sort of, I am proud of that. And that maybe is the main driver, really. And I guess there's something also about celebrating the ordinary um, or what is seen as the ordinary. So you're not kind of going in with this crazy story. You know, it's not like, um, it's more a sort of celebration of the everyday, right? Definitely, yeah. I've got so little interest in the extraordinary I, I really do. I'm just, I've been thinking about it a lot, actually, because I've been doing these diaries and they are so ordinary. You know, I, in the programme that goes out tomorrow, there's a woman shouting for her son to throw his laundry downstairs. You know, it just doesn't get any more kind of prosaic. Um, and I've been sort of thinking about, so why, why is it that actually I can listen to that and be really touched by it? And I think it, it sort of has this metonymic uh, quality it's like just something like that or you know a cup of tea or you know a, a man elderly man walking into the kitchen and saying it's a nice day for gardening to his wife what they actually stand in for is 
this sort of hugely complicated act of loving other people. You know, it's this, all the frustration, all the kind of delight, all the everyday work of that. And somehow we can kind of catch that in just in in the tone in you know in our shared knowledge of you know the love and the effort and the frustration it takes to think about the laundry yeah do you want to explain a bit what you've been doing um with these diaries yeah so when lockdown started and I was still in New York um I don't know I just had this huge sense I what happened I was up really early because I still had a bit of jet lag because I'd only just got there um so it was four o'clock five o'clock in the morning and my partner was still asleep and the sun was coming up and um I was just sitting there just feeling shocked and horrified and you know scrolling through twitter and I just suddenly thought actually this is I can do something here you know I actually can do something here I can use you know whatever skill I have to make room for people and uh, to sort of invite intimacy to maybe find a way to kind of let people talk about what they're feeling and maybe make something that is almost kind of communal processing or grieving or hoping um so yeah so I what I pitched and pit and it was it actually got accepted within really quickly um was just something based around audio diaries so people all over the world sending in little audio diaries about how they were making sense of things um and sort of woven through with my story yeah and I've made three episodes for Radio 4 and I'm pretty sure the last one the last one goes out tomorrow and I'm pretty sure that will be the last Mm. I finally made it out for a walk these last 10 years or so I've lived really close to woods just a minute or two from my front door. And they're quite well managed, which is always a little bit of a disappointment because somehow I always want woods to be wilder. Uh, but at this time in the morning, there's actually no one else around. So I can kind of pretend they are a little bit wilder. I've been missing this every day and I didn't know. Every day and I knew and I just couldn't make myself get out the front door. I'm always very, I don't know if, yeah, admirative or uh, envious perhaps. I don't know what the right word is, but I find that I keep myself out of things as much as I can. I'm very bad at bringing myself into the narrative. I find that incredibly difficult. Um, I was really intrigued by that. I wonder why. Do you have a sense of why? In the work I do, I feel like I'm so focused on other people's moment. And so I want to kind of efface myself as much as possible. And yeah, I um, and also I'm quite a private person. Although, you know, I love telling stories. And if you get me in the right kind of moment, I will talk about crazy things that happen to me. But in terms of kind of broadcasting that, yeah, I think that there's a kind of quiet privacy that I'm, I guess, keep. <laughs> you, you're always quite present, right? It's kind of your journey at the same time, often, isn't it? Yeah, and I wouldn't have done that instinctively. I mean, right at the beginning, I wanted to make a montage and I was cutting me out. And just by virtue of 
sort of tiny budgets and, you know, the BBC love for presenters, I got nudged into having a go at presenting. And the honest truth was I absolutely bloody loved it. (laughs) I was simultaneously terrified and I loved it. And all of a sudden it was this, you know, it was a way to write and it was a way to talk because I have always been very shy you know, I almost feel like I've spent the last 10 years practicing how to tell my story out loud to people because I I do just find it so difficult. I think that's partly why, you know, if I sit in a Zoom call and suddenly all the eyes look at me, I'm under the table. But yeah, so there was just this, you know, really quiet, shy joy of what you mean you're interested, you know, and I, I can just sit at home and figure it out for myself. You know, I don't have to do it live because I'd be rubbish at that. But I can just sit and very quietly sort of evolve how I feel about something. You know, actually give myself time to tune into sort of the deeper feelings about a particular subject. You know, why is it mine? Why have I chosen it? I think if I hadn't found that, my life would have been so black and white. Mm. You know, it's sort of beyond wonderful that I was invited and given that room to do it and I guess this the other thing with life on lockdown series is that you've also involved partner sort of family you know there's there's the kind of world (laughs) that you've included um yeah they all knew it was coming (laughs) so how was that (laughs) it's been really weird and yeah it's been really weird it's been really interesting figuring it out especially David my partner um I mean he has a bit of a documentary bent anyway so he you know he's a he takes amazing photographs um so I think he gets it he's also able just to be very natural and forget about it which I find amazing and also I've always given him veto so he has absolute no quibble veto um, anything that goes in, you know, he hears. You know, I've pulled many a conversation where Jesse said, oh, no, I just that's too much. And it's like, oh, OK, I've forgotten where the line is again. Mm. Um, but, yeah, well, no, we've just worked it through, really. And the last one tomorrow, there's actually these tiny bits of my mum who I have to confess I did record without telling because I just know the only times I've tried recording her and told her she's just become, you know, Mute. a bit of wood. Yeah. Um, so I, I was a bit sneaky and then I sort of said to her afterwards, look, I've done this, but, you know, absolutely, if it bothers you, it comes out. Um, but I think she's secretly quite chuffed. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's just been a real case of figuring it out and just like constantly thinking about the balance of me compared to other people. You know, at the beginning, there's always not enough me. You know, I'm not anchoring the story. I'm not holding it. Then you know, three drafts in, there's too much me because I've gone in the other direction and I have to strip some out again. So that sort of tension between holding the storytelling and making room is, yeah, is really interesting and sort of just finding my truth Mm. of the subject in relation to the other people I'm talking to. And it really is a balance, isn't it? Um, I remember having this really... um It was actually at Hearsay at the Radio and Audio Festival in Ireland. Somebody presented their work and it was kind of about their sexuality and their kind of journey around that. And 
incredibly intimate kind of details about them kind of going on this journey. And there was something about it that just, I, I was just like, why would you do that? <laughs> it just seems such a strange decision, but I, I guess for some people there's this need. But I, I, suppose, I suppose what I like in all of it, in all of, our, all of those, those different sets of work, mine, yours, hers, is that sense of uh, sort of being utterly true to yourself you know, your own creative juices. And um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny how just, you know, you have to sort of, you have to make what you are. You can't sort of escape your own genre. Mm. I have to say doing the first episode of this um, series about the art of conversation, I found really difficult because it was just me talking about my work. And I found that's, uh, that's probably the most difficult thing I've done. And I'm just sitting in a room like talking about my own work. But on the other hand, you put me in front of a group of people and I'm presenting. No problem. Yeah, you just needed an audience. So it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's like it, it's, it's being in that kind of very personal bubble maybe that I find a bit scary. So yeah, having an audience perhaps is the way to do it. Yeah, um, yeah which I think is why I, I enjoy teaching. Because I, I teach a lot as well and there's definitely something very energising and there's a whole kind of learning that, that goes with that. Um, yeah, I was interested in that because you, yeah. So tell me about that because you mentioned that, that idea of sort of learning through teaching versus learning through experience, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, because sometimes there's been moments where um, I'm having to teach something that I kind of know instinctively, but I've never really known how it works necessarily. So then having to teach other people to to do it. So it might be something quite technical. It might be just, you know, how, how to put something together. But then through having to kind of figure out how I'm going to explain that to people, um, it's it's almost like relearning <laughs> how it's done. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like I've learnt loads by teaching, but at the same time I've been quietly terrified the whole way through that I was kind of pulling the wings off the butterfly because the, I don't know, there is something just about that inarticulate, intuitive making versus when you know what the rules and the steps are. You know, there's that energy to that stumbling around in the dark. I think where what I do get a real kick out of is just it's a lot of women actually I teach a lot of women and um in particular and just you know people come in without confidence and a bit nervous and you know a bit small and then they do just yeah just watching that dawning sense of oh yes I can Mm. um and that's kind of pretty magic over a weekend I was actually Um, going to bring that up because I've noticed that that I meet people all the time who have been on your workshops and they tend I don't think I've met any men that have gone through your (laughs) strange and charmed it's it's a very female space yeah I mean I I, there are some men and uh but it'll be kind of one per course or something like that you know in a group of sort of six or seven but I do think often it's about confidence you know is yeah I mean and also just that slightly sad thing of often you know, women feel like we need another course. Mm. You know, it all comes back to that, just being able to take up space. I think often I, I've got a really dear male friend who watched me trying to get my act together with radio all the way through my kind of, you know, 30s. And 
in a way it was mystifying to him because his whole thing was just just do it you know what why do you need a course you know just go and figure it out and it just really struck me the difference in that sort of mental energy and belief and sense of agency versus that timidity that actually often it's women who have you know they will they get themselves into jobs that are smaller than they are yeah so and I guess even even today there is this kind of fear of technology that which doesn't make any sense now because you know it's it is most people's every day but I think I I see it uh when I teach that young men kind of dive into the editing of a really confident and kind of happy to play around with the tools and there's always this very I mean not all of them but most of the young women are, are quite tentative and like oh mm. I'm not sure I can do this you know I'm, I'm a bit of a technophobe yeah and that yeah and you have to part of the job is that work is actually getting them over that you know over that terror enough just to you know accept that making a mistake is not them being an idiot it's just part of the process of learning yeah and Um, you know yeah it kind of it actually breaks my heart that we're still we're still having to do that it really breaks my heart I just can't I can't quite believe that 2020 and we are still having you know having to say that it's more like you're giving people the permission to play and give it a go yeah, and I'd like that. I like giving p- people permission to play. I think that's about as good a job as you can get, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you know, short of um, just like giving people permission to kind of you know smash things up a bit because that's always quite fun as well. Exactly, but, and um, just teaching them how to use the crayons and the paper and whatever they need to kind of make whatever's in their head kind of come yeah, alive and yeah. make a mess. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There was something that struck me about, um, it's kind of going backwards a bit, but um, in the conversation, but... We can um, meander. Yeah, exactly. We are, we're taking the back route a little bit now. Um, I've heard you mention this a few times, and I read it in an essay you wrote for the Barbican as well. Um, This idea of almost this kind of mindfulness uh, state, meditative state, where you're kind of being present in order to create the space for the person that you're about to talk to so to join you in that space and I just wondered if you could talk about that and and when you realized you were doing that or was it quite a conscious thing to start with um so it actually it came out of a kiss uh and yeah, which is an odd thing to say. <laughs> it came out of a kiss. So I was, I was in, I was in Brixton. I was seeing a guy. He was uh, all over the shop. He was running around. He was late for a meeting. His bicycle had three punctures. Uh, he couldn't find his notes. And I was sort of in that slight bemused state of we hadn't been going out that long. I didn't know his flat that well. Wasn't sure whether I should be there. You know, all the all the early stuff. And somehow or other, on this very hot, humid afternoon, we ended up kissing. And there was this moment midway through the kiss where suddenly he arrived. And I'd felt very grounded going into it. And, you know, I could almost feel that sort of transmission of the groundedness where somehow he just, suddenly he was there. And 
we stopped. You know, it wasn't it wasn't anything naughty. It was just a kiss. It was a good one, but just a kiss. And he said to me, "How did you do that?" And and it really made me realise it was his it was his awareness of what had happened as well that made me realise actually that's what presence has the potential to do. You know, if if you are present enough, then actually you can almost um, transmit it. So I'm really suddenly conscious of what a horrible metaphor that is at the moment, but it's catching. <laughs> presence is definitely definitely catching. So yeah, it was sort of realising that and then starting to realise that I was I was doing it unconsciously when I interviewed and then just thinking about how to sort of make it part of what I did. So I do have this little routine. I will, when I'm walking to an interview, I, I put myself in my body and I sort of almost mentally push down all the nonsense that's going on in my head, gets tucked away in a little box and put out the back for a bit. And I think about, you know, the way my feet sound on the pavement and the sounds that are going on around me so that when I turn up, I really, really turn up. And people won't necessarily notice that immediately. But I do think with a bit of luck, they tune in. Mm. And somehow that, you know, it's almost some weird, you know, resonance between you and them. They tune into your sort of physical presence and then they turn up too. And I think that is when you get the real kind of magic and the real alchemy. And, you know, it's like the whole air in the room gets slightly charged. You know, that's when you're sitting there talking and the light falls quietly outside and you're just in this, you know, strange twilight bubble of conversation and communion. I don't know, I might be making it up, but I don't think I am. I, I do think that I do think that's what happens, whether in kissing or radio. When I read that, and I heard, I've heard you talking about that before, I, it, sort of, it really resonated, and I realised that I also do that, but I wasn't conscious of it at all. But I think I can tell. I think I knew that about you. You know, it's like it's that, that lovely thing. I recognise it in other people. So, like you know, the very first time we met, you know, I I can I've always felt that about you, and it's you know, it's lovely because it's it's how you know someone would be a great great conversationalist or interviewer because they've just got that little bit of silence inside them somehow. Yeah, exactly. I think it's about the silence, isn't it? And, and giving the other person space. The presence is so important just because if you're sitting with someone and they can feel you're distracted and you're not really listening, they're just not going to give you anything because why should they? Well, and it's the shyness. You know, I yeah. tend to always work in thinking half the time most people don't necessarily have the ego to believe that they've got anything you would want to hear. That's true. So yeah, you have to kind of always get past that. Yeah, you don't want to know about me. Well, actually, I do. <laughs> yeah, actually, I've just travelled, yeah. you know, four hours to hear it. So give us a cup of tea. Let's talk. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, it's a pretty amazing thing to do, really. And I think what sort of just um, moving very connected to that is this idea around empathy and emotion. So I think both of us have talk to people about very difficult things and quite emotional topics and around death and you know things that are, are, are hard to hear but there's a joy in it also and you know I've thought about this and as well and I uh, you know sometimes I'm like I'm not really feeling anything but I'm really listening and I'm present 
and I'm in the moment, but I'm not kind of engaged in the emotion of it. Yeah, there's a really lovely therapy idea, and I have no idea where it comes from. Uh, so I could be quoting anybody at this point, but weeping with one eye. And that seems really useful to me. You know, it's like I am I am feeling it, but at the same time, you know, I'm a storyteller. I've got a responsibility to, you know, the people I'm telling stories to as well as the people I'm telling stories for. Um, so it's sort of having both those parts going at the same time. But having said that, I can honestly say, certainly when I started out, I can remember being in an interview. I did an interview in Vietnam with a American lady who'd lost her son in the war and she was back to visit his grave. And she was talking about how she would sometimes just go and stand at his grave and she would watch other Vietnam vets trying to kind of get to the wall of memory or something like that and just not being able to quite make it and she would go up and hug them and as she was saying it she was telling me this story and I was jet lagged I was just off a flight but I started crying and I was crying you know like crying so much that you know tears falling on your shoes crying Mm. and she just kept going she just kept telling me. And, you know, I remember thinking afterwards, I'm going to have to learn how to do this because I, I cannot, you know, it's just so inappropriate to have that kind of reaction. So I've never done it quite as intensely since. But, yeah, I mean, there are definitely moments I will, te- I will tear up, definitely. Mm. Because what somebody's saying is just so, I don't know, just, I don't know, just, I feel sort of hugely, what do I feel? I don't know, just that moment when you get to witness our extreme fragility, you know, and somebody's strong enough to tell you the story anyway. Yeah. And that that feels really something. Yeah, but I guess there's this kind of, I guess, skill in not making your emotion become more important than theirs. <laughs> or trying, trying yeah. not to. <laughs> yeah, trying yeah. not to. Because yeah, trying then, really hard not because to. Because then when, you know, I, I've seen this happen when somebody's interviewing someone and, and, you know, it's a really hard story and they they get emotional and then the interviewee starts comforting the interviewer and it becomes all about them and their kind yeah. of sorrow and, and, and emotion that they're feeling and then it just feels like, you know, the whole thing's flipped. And Yeah, it's just not, it's not, that's not what you're there for at exactly. all. Exactly. You've totally lost that sense of bearing witness. Yeah. You, you talked about kind of entering the room and I'm really interested. I've been kind of thinking about this a lot about, because um, I had to write an article about social broadcasts and, and what got me really thinking is um, that I didn't realise that was happening and it's often as you write you kind of figure out what you're what you're doing this idea of uh, using props but also a stage so creating the right space for people to be and I think you know sometimes you're walking into somebody else's space and they've already created it but there's something about also kind of creating that um, so they might not be aware of it but sort of it's almost like the idea of a studio but in real life so that you're you're kind of taking people into a place where they can feel that they can speak freely um so it might be a park bench you know it could be anything but it's <laughs> it's giving that kind of space that role as a stage for for the conversation to happen and i just yeah. wondered if you'd n- sort of thinking about that whether you've 
created anything like that? Um, I have, but I would say I, just the way you've framed it, I find really useful. I find, as a concept, I find that a really, really interesting idea. Um, and because um, in a way, I've always resisted the radio studio. I've gone yeah. in the other direction. So, yeah. you know, I've resisted having people in studios because I don't want them to sound like they're in a studio. Yeah. So I like interviewing people in their homes just because I think they, you know, I can turn up and I can be smaller. I don't have to be the woman from the BBC in big capital letters. Mm. You know, I don't have to be intimidating. I can just turn up and have a cup of tea and a biscuit. And I think that creates an intimacy or just a relax, you know, it makes it more relaxed. Um, but yeah, then I've also um, made a, so the saltwater antenna. It was a commission for Thames Estuary Festival 2016. And it was a radio antenna made out of salt water from the Thames. We, we did add a little bit of salt because the Thames wasn't quite salty enough. But essentially a sort of jet of Thames water in a um, crystal tube. Um, so it was very beautiful and crystalline in, against the blue sky. And we broadcast a radio signal to it that it sort of plucked out of the air. And what we broadcast on the signal was um, stories that I'd recorded from people about why they visited the Thames every day. I walked up and down the estuary and had little conversations with people about, you know, they often had appointments. They had appointments with the Thames every day and I, I just loved that mm. for so many different reasons. So that's what we were broadcasting, a piece about that made out of these stories. My mind will dream about what people have passed through this way over thousands of years. You know, what were their lives like and how did they survive? But, uh, you know, and then I think, oh, a thousand years ago, what would it have been like to have arrived in? Thought, how am I going to get across? Pilgrims, travellers would have come down through Essex to cross the river here, which is very dangerous. And we have found these pilgrim badges, little lead badges that you pick up as souvenirs and for whatever reason they get lost or deliberately deposited near to rivers quite often. It's like a, a bit of an offering. <laughs> And people could sit and listen. If you imagine a sort of wooden bench, the sort of bench that you get circling, a, you know, one of those whopping great old tree trunks. So we created a wooden bench that circled this sort of crystalline jet of water. And you could just sit and put your back to it and listen to, listen to these stories. But it was all sat on LV-21, which is this amazing bright red light ship on the side of the Thames, moored up at Dartford. And so you got this wonderful thing where you were listening to a bird on the audio and then a bird would fly past in real life. So you got, you know, this wonderful kind of weird, the universe doing the mix thing. Yeah, and that was lovely, just sort of recording in situ, just recording along the Thames and, you know, just with whatever was happening at the moment and recording in a place where people could sort of gaze at the horizon far off or talk as they watched a cruise ship, you know, drift past in the very surreal way that they do on the lower Thames. And that makes a difference. It changes the way people respond and think and talk. Um, I, I call that like a nexus of encounter. So, you know, this idea of a kind of space where all different types of people might cross paths um and if you are there uh kind of at this 
sort of focal point then then you're using the space but you're also using the fact that people are passing through the space and their kind of relationship with that space in in that moment yeah like your beautiful king's cross project it's sort of thames as king's cross exactly exactly so that that kind of you know there are several narratives going on and you become part of that narrative too because you're interacting with people as they walk through through the space that they're that they're visiting and there's there's something quite lovely about the serendipity of that and the diversity that you get in these kind of spaces as well because you know they they're just spaces they're not kind of prescribed so it's not a church it's not a a school you know it's it's a public space where anyone can go in theory so the kind of range of experiences and stories that you get is much more interesting in my view just because there's so many different types of people that that kind of walk through I'm a big fan of um shopping malls and um, yeah. you know that those kind of spaces <laughs> where it's just like you know people go there for a reason but they also kind of just go there to hang out and <laughs> no I agree completely I agree completely and just like the strange encounters and the chart you know absolutely not knowing who you're going to bump into next it's just yeah. yeah much more diverse much more interesting and so moving on um there's a nice segue into serendipity here um and um you know using uh, a place of encounter as as your kind of prop in a way so you you did that that with um the the art shop I, i've forgotten the name of it yeah con ellison's and the program little shop of colors yes exactly so using that as a kind of um focal point and then meeting people in that space and kind of you know speaking to them and 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 allowing them to reveal their stories or sort of prodding them in that direction talk talk us through that cornelison's is um is an art supply shop uh just beside the british museum and art supply sounds very dry but it's um dates back to the 19th century i think jmw turner first gave them the idea um they were artist colourmen, so they sold pigments and if you go in there now, it's just this amazing kind of tiny shop, all dark wood, you know, old kind of medicine cabinets and jar after jar after jar, these really old pigments, all different colours, you know, and you can you can take a stopper off and, you know, you're in the Renaissance. You know, it, it, this is what Titian used. Um, and they have a really interesting clientele. They get all kinds of people in there. Um, so I just kind of lurked for afternoons, you know, a couple of afternoons a week and just, you know, saw who turned up and just extraordinary stories, you know, just stories that I would never, because you're always fishing, you know, essentially Mm. it is a fishing expedition, you don't know what you're going to get. But just, you know, there's nothing quite like that moment when, you know, someone is willing to play and is up for telling you and you realise, you know, wow, this person is really interesting and, you know, a sort of natural poet. They've got a really interesting way of talking. They've got my holy grail is always uh, original thoughts and original words. You know, and when you get lucky enough, you hit someone like that. It's just, you know, yeah, can't quite believe you can't quite believe it. There are many brilliant calligraphers in Istanbul. That's where I studied Istanbul and Konya. Konya, where's Konya? Konya's in Anatolia. It's the home of the Sufis, Sufi Tarikat Mevlana, Jaladin Rumi. It was probably one of the finest art 
cities of the world. Its old name was Iconium, a Roman name. So how did you end up there? Poetry. Poetry? Yeah. Tell me. The poetry of uh, Mevlana Jaladin Rumi took me there a long time ago. Yeah, I got enthralled, swamped and overtaken by this beautiful poetry and decided to investigate further. I learned Arabic, learned Farsi. Uh, I studied 10 years. I teach in mosques and local madrasas. I teach children to write Arabic. It's a very disciplined tradition. Not only do you have to get everything on the page right, but you have to get everything in yourself right as well. The right intentions, right feelings. What are the right feelings? Love, what, love, the... love, love. The only feeling, the only feeling which comes through is love. It's a very different kind of interviewing, though, isn't it, when you have no idea? Because we, we talked about this at the beginning, about kind of, you know, you've got you've got a kind of idea of what, this person is going to tell you which is why you're there so that you know you go to their house because you know they're going to talk about something um because you've done your re research but in this case other than them having some connection to art and needing art supplies that's the only starting point you have i guess yeah and i kind of love i love that i mean just you have absolutely no idea what you're getting yourself into and uh yeah, so I always just start, and I'm sure you do too, you start with sort of, you know, just very simple, easy, interested questions. Um, and really, again, I think it comes back to the presence thing, you know, it's about whether in that moment they decide they like you. You know, it's about whether you're unthreatening and you're interested and curious and, you know, there's something that makes them think, oh, okay, maybe I don't have to rush off. Yeah, so I think in that case, I just started by asking what they were making and just got these amazing stories. You know, I, the hit rate on that, because there's always, you know, there's always stories you can't quite use that are too complicated or people don't want to play. But it was something like, I would say I could have used, you know, one in three, two in three that I recorded, which is, you know, really amazing. And did you record them all in the shop or did you kind of get the story and then go and record it somewhere else? I recorded them all in the shop, uh, which was an absolute nightmare um, in terms of sound. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, there'd be people kind of ringing the till in the background and somebody would be saying something amazing and I'd be cursing. Um, but, yeah, I just want... I, it's exactly what you said about having a stage and it just felt, you know, if you want people to tap into their excitement about a place... And about objects in particular, you know, they need to be able to reach out a hand and touch the brush. You know, they need to be able to pick up the jar full of, you know, I don't know, dragon's blood. There's this amazing pigment called dragon's blood. You know, they, they need the props. So you just get a different kind of recording. And yeah. it's much more natural. Again, you know, if yeah. you take them off somewhere else, it's like never take someone to the second location when you're in when you're recording. Because <laughs> they're instantly, you know, just a bit more awkward. I guess that kind of leads on to the idea of a prop. And for me, um, I would say the microphone, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche to say this, it's been said a million times, but there is definitely something in the microphone acting as a prop or, or, or as a kind of excuse to become somebody else and have the courage to go and talk to all these people. So there, there's this kind of, I guess, superpower. 
that happens when you've got this thing in your hand or the permission to ask really personal questions as well. Um, in I, I'm specifically talking about those more serendipitous moments where you are kind of approaching people completely cold. Mm. It's like, I mean, it's like a uniform, isn't it, in that way? It's sort of a kind of... Don't they do all those studies about how wearing a uniform changes, you know, the way... For the good, for good and ill, but there is something about it has it does have a magic power. It bestows on the holder the power to ask, you know, all kinds of weird and wonderful things. And yeah, I mean, and that's the most one of the most lovely bits of, of doing it. I think it's just that sort of licensed nosiness. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but it also, I mean, it puts it puts limits on it and I think that's what it has always interested me and again it's kind of it's been said before but you know a lot of people working in audio and radio actually are quite shy mm. you know and we are quite introverted and you know a microphone is a way to control a conversation you know it is a way to uh you know to we, we're the ones who often bring it to the end and I think that's always really interested me that sort of sense that you know, it's a way for a shy person or someone who perhaps is has an anxiety about being overwhelmed by the world or by other people. You know, it gives you a little bit more control over what's going on. Mm, I hadn't thought of it like that. That's interesting. Yeah, I get I get what you mean. That makes total sense. And um, because there is something about in some ways, yes, you're allowing somebody else to kind of go in the direction that you, they want to go in, but then you can bring it back mm-hmm. and you can take it somewhere else if you want to. And there is an element of control in there for sure. Definitely. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. Kathy, thank you for speaking to me about conversation. And I think what's been lovely for me is to see how much we have in common, but also what differentiates the way we work as well and I think that's always fascinating you know to see how people uh, navigate this space in their own way so yeah thank you so much for taking part in this little series no it's lovely and I feel like we've been sort of waiting to have this conversation for about 10 years <laughs> it's kind of all it took was a pandemic Although, you know, I kind of had thought about this long before that um, and you you were on my list. um, (laughs) So it wasn't it wasn't necessarily (laughs) pandemic driven. Oh, well, no, I'm just really glad it is. It's just, yeah, really nice to have time to think about it all with you. I'm Lucia Skadzokyo and you've been listening to Transmitter from Social Broadcasts. And I've been in conversation with audio maker Kathy Fitzgerald. You can hear most of her work on BBC Sounds or on her website, kathyfitzgerald.co.uk. All the details of what you've heard with links to the audio will be available on the transmitter tab of socialbroadcasts.co.uk, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter and catch up on previous episodes. I'll be back with more conversations about the art of conversation soon. And if you have any comments or recommendations, please do drop me a line via the website. Until next time, happy listening. And who knows, perhaps a conversation with a stranger. <laughs>